Well, folks, I promise you this podcast was going to be different, and this particular episode has got quite a variety for you. We have some uh, fiction by Nick Boldock. We have poetry by Nick Degg and Andrew Briggs. We have a song by Peter Ord. So we have a little bit of everything there for you. Hope you enjoy this, folks. SU9 by Nick Boldock. There it was up in the clouds, majestic and powerful. As I stared hard into the night sky, even in the dark I could see the shine of the black metal, the yellow stripe down the side and that portentous stark white lettering underneath that read like a code, SU9. To most people, SU9 is the local police helicopter, or at least that's what they think they see, but I know better, and they know that I know better. They know, and they're looking for me. Ordinary people assume that the helicopter's up there every night doing police work, tracking car thieves, drug dealers, burglars, the undesirables who work necessarily under the cover of darkness. People see the spotlight beaming down from SU-9, surveying the city. They think that it's the police up there. But SU-9 is not the police, nor is it a helicopter. Sure, it looks like a helicopter. What SU-9 actually is, and I can tell you this because I know it to be true, is a spaceship. That's right, a spaceship. What is it really doing every night with that spotlight? Is looking for someone. And that someone is me. I went into the backyard as I did every night, sometimes five or six times. I jumped around, waving my arms, hoping they'd see me. I didn't call out, there was no point. When the craft was so far up in the sky, a couple of miles off to the north. There was no chance they'd see me unless they flew right above me. But I had to try. I'd been chosen. I didn't know why. And I had to do everything I could to help them find me. Somehow, they decided I was special. I was the only one they wanted to communicate with. They needed me. After five minutes of me leaping around like a lunatic, SU-9 disappeared off into the distance. It would likely be back later, and when that happened I would go through the whole rigmarole again, running outside, jumping around in the hope that they would see me. So far, nothing. The weird thing was, they were actually already communicating with me. They knew who I was, but they didn't know where to find me. It started with an article in the local newspaper. The article was all about a helicopter the police had bought, hyping it up as the most technologically advanced of its kind. I didn't normally read the newspaper in any detail. I usually just flick through the sports pages. But on this occasion, I'd stopped at this page for no reason I could fathom. Somewhere inside, I knew I had no choice but to read it. When I got to the end of the piece... I knew for sure that someone or something was playing with me. The author of the article, it said, was Daniel Grice. My name, next to the byline, was a picture of the author and he looked familiar. He should have done. It was me, without a shadow of a doubt. I was so taken aback that I nearly fell sideways off my chair. There were lights dancing on the edge of my vision. My stomach was being tossed around on a wave of nausea. I glanced back at the paper, saw the message in the corner of the page where the page number should have been. It said simply, help, SU9. I yanked my shoes on, my brain flashing like a broken fruit machine, and ran to the corner shop down the road. I bought three more newspapers. I got them home, 
flick through them and toss them one by one onto the floor. The article wasn't there. I picked them back up and checked again. Nothing. Only the first paper had the article inside. To be sure, I ran back to the shop and bought another half dozen copies. The owner looked at me with a slightly cautious expression, as if I might pull a shotgun on him at any moment. In fairness, I must have looked quite delirious, but I was in a disturbing place at that moment. None of these papers had the article in either. I didn't know whether I was hallucinating, going mad, or someone was after me, or what. What are you supposed to think when you open the newspaper and find an article, apparently written by yourself, with a big ugly mugshot right there on the page, and a weird message where the page number should be? I looked for rational explanations. I considered that someone in the paper could have rigged the article, someone taken the mickey, someone I'd annoyed in the past, an ex-girlfriend maybe, something like that. That wouldn't explain why the article was only in one paper, that first paper, was still spread open on the table and the offending article gazing up at me as real as it could be. After downing a couple of shots of the scotch I'd had in since Christmas, I switched on my computer and went straight to the newspaper's website to see if there were any other articles by someone with my name. My reasoning was that it was possible, albeit only mathematically, that someone with the same name as me worked at the paper and that somehow they'd gotten my photo mixed up with his. Tried not to remind myself that the paper wouldn't have had a picture of me in the first place. I was trying my best to explain this away all rationally. Like most websites, the one for the paper had a box you could use to search the site. I typed in Daniel Grice and pressed return. I waited for what seemed like a decade. And then finally, one single search result came up on the screen. There's no description, nothing like you usually get from web searches. Instead, all that came up was a link to another website. There was no blurb, but the link itself couldn't have been more prominent if it had written in fluorescent orange. It said, matter-of-factly, www.danielgrice-su9.com. My hands were shaking as I clicked the link. Almost instantaneously, the website opened a new window on the screen in front of me. It was a blank white screen. Across the middle ran ten words in plain blue type. Daniel Grice. Help us find you. We need your help. My breath caught in my throat and I felt as if I might faint at any moment. Reading those words felt like peering into my own grave. I ground my fists into my eyes and hoped that the letters would disappear, but they didn't. This was how the messages started. I bought the newspaper every day after that, but there were no more articles. I guess once I'd found the website, there was no need for them to use the paper anymore. The website messages kept on coming. Every other day the words changed, but the meaning was always the same. We must find you. Where are you? That sort of thing. After the first few messages, the words began to be accompanied by a small picture, an image of a craft that looked like the SU-9 helicopter, but wasn't quite the same. There were no blades and the paintwork was different. Instead of the black bodywork with a yellow stripe, the craft in this picture was metallic silver. It was like a photograph, a small one, but a photograph nonetheless. Inside the cockpit of the craft was the outline of a figure that looked not quite human, its head not the right shape, its eyes too big for its features. I started looking out for the SU-9 craft every night, staying up through the dark hours and then sleeping through the day. 
hardly seemed to come in the day and I had to sleep some time. So I turned time around and slept in the daylight so I could keep watch during the night. I became obsessed, standing at the back door waiting for SU-9 to appear in the distance, running outside when it did, jumping and waving. This time when I came back inside from the yard there was a new message on the website. At night, whenever I wasn't in the yard at the back door, I was on the site, continually refreshing the page to see if the message would change. Tonight, it had. On the screen, it said, We can't wait any longer. We need you. You must give us a sign. I digested the words. Time was running out. They wanted a sign. They wanted me to show them where I was. Shouting and waving was no good. That was obvious. I had to do something bigger. That was what they meant. They had to find me soon. Their special one. The one they'd picked. I already had the perfect plan. Two nights later, I was all ready to go. Took a look out in the backyard up into the sky. No sign of SU-9. No sign of the alien creatures that I was sure had chosen me. I unlocked the gate and walked out into the back alleyway. My house backed onto a narrow footpath. On the other side of that were more houses. The one directly opposite had a weathered wooden gate that wasn't even locked. I pushed it open and crept into the garden. There were no lights on in the house, no signs of life. I walked up to the back door. It was an old wooden thing. When I tried the handle, I could feel some give in the door. It didn't fit snugly in the frame, probably warped by years of wind and rain. I gave it a push where the lock was. It moved inward a little bit, but not much. Took a breath, stepped back. One pace and kicked the door in. It gave way easily and I pounced forward to stop it springing back to keep the noise to a minimum. Not that it mattered. What I was doing could be a matter of life and death. I was the most important man on the planet. SU-9 wanted me and nothing could be more significant than that. I paused in the gloomy kitchen, listening. No sound. Perhaps nobody was home. That would make the job a lot easier. I moved quickly. I went through the house until I came to the stars, stairs. I walked up slowly. The petrol can in my hand knocked against the wall and made a noise like a thunderclap. I stopped, st- still no sound from the house. I continued up to the top of the stairs, then unscrewed the cap on the fuel can, started to splash the petrol onto the floor. I moved back down the stairs, pouring petrol as I went, then back through the house towards the back door where I'd come in. The smell of fuel filled my nose and invaded my eyes, stinging, burning. When I made it to the back door, I laid the can on the kitchen floor and reached into my pocket and pulled out a box of matches. I didn't hesitate. What was going on was bigger than anything. I couldn't afford to wimp out. I lit a match in one swift movement and shoved it back into the box, still lit. The matchbox flared up in my hand and I tossed it onto the kitchen floor. There was a second's pause which seemed to last forever and then the house lit up like a bonfire. I stood in the backyard and watched as the house turned into a flaming inferno. The flames licked through the roof, reaching up into the night sky. The house was a blazing fireball. It was the signal I needed to make. They must find me now. As the blue lights illuminated the street, the sirens wailed. I waited for SU-9 to appear. It would come any second. I was sure of it. I scanned the sky, left to right, straining my eyes to catch a glimpse of her, but SU-9 was nowhere to be seen. I waited and waited. Across the way, the fire brigade 
turned their hoses onto the flaming building. I could hear commotion in the street as people came out of their houses to see what was going on. A waste of time. They had no idea. All they saw was a burning house. They didn't understand what was really happening. But still, SU-9 did not appear. I stayed in the yard for hours until the sun broke through the shadows. And by that time, the fire died down almost completely. The house was a wreck, a burnt-out shell. And all for nothing, my signal hadn't worked. I slept on and off, sprawled out on the sofa, stinking of petrol and smoke. I was finally woken by the sound of the doorbell. I dragged myself up and pulled back the curtains. There was a police car parked right outside. Two officers were stood on the doorstep. Someone must have seen seen me and told them this was bad. I had a job to do and I couldn't do it from a prison cell. I answered the door. What else could I do? Mr Grice? Yes, I said. Can we come in, please? We need to ask you a few questions. Yes, of course, I said, forcing a smile. Once inside, they both looked at me with serious expressions. The same officer spoke. Sir, you were seen last night in the alleyway behind your house, just before the fire. What can you tell me about that? I think there must be a mistake, I offered. I was inside all night. Who says they saw me? You were seen from the police helicopter, Mr Grice. SU-9. SU-9 had seen me. This was it. They were on my side. Are you from SU-9, I said. Have you come for me? The cops looked at each other. The second officer, the one who hadn't spoken yet, broke his silence. Could you come with us, please, sir? We need to talk to you. Of course they did. They had found me. Lead the way, I said. I've been waiting for you. They took me by the arm and led me out to the car, or what looked like a car. As we drove off down the street, I smiled to myself. I'd done it. I'd led them to me, and now I'd be able to help them. I couldn't wait to find out what they wanted from me. Imagine, after all this time, I'd thought that SU-9 was a lone messenger, a solitary angel, when all along there'd been others, looking and acting like policemen, all working together, searching for me. Finally, their search was over. They had found me. I sank back into the seat and waited to see where they would take me. I hoped they would take me to SU-9 so I could see it as it really was, without its disguise. I hoped. I hoped. End. Sad Cafe by Nick Degg 14 tables, 13 souls. Lost in thought, lost in deed. Sugar lumps counted for the millionth time. Sauce bottles grown, teaspoons stained. Lino pattern lost to wear. Worn from years of worn out shoes. Breakfast come, breakfast go. Smell like heaven, taste like hell. Stubble chin study the sporting life as betting slips into the red. A dentist drinks a cup of teeth. His shaking hands spill his living. Pictures hang of greasy views, like dead windows on crying walls. Not ready eggs and fatty pools, mopped with toast and processed pig. No looking up, no ticking clock, because time stops here at the sad cafe. The Ungrateful Dead by Darren Sant 
The squeal of a badly played electric guitar assaulted my ears, and for the third time that evening, I wondered why the hell I did this job. Frenzied teens leapt around the mosh pit like rabid squirrels. My temples pounded in time to the drumbeat, and I took a sip of JD and Coke to try and further deaden my senses. Why the fuck had my editor given me this assignment? I'd never had a good word to say about this fucking band. I hated grunge. Looking around the temple, I wondered if I'd been in a grottier club. On reflection, yes, plenty. I knocked back the remainder of my drink and waved, weaved my way a little drunkenly to the toilet. After a quick slash, I admired the impressive pool of vomit in each and every fucking sink and stood at the back to watch the Ungrateful Dead's last few tracks. Shite name for a band anyway. The band had four members who were all pimply, overly pale, geeky fuckwits. There'd been a lot of hype about them. They're on the rise and other hacks would have given their left bollock for the chance to do this interview. There was talk that they regularly performed satanic rituals, the obligatory wild tales of, wild tales of groupie orgies and substance abuse. I'd heard it all before and it was no more believable now. But hey, it filled venues and sold albums. Every whining, wanky, spotty little tosspot wanted to be like them. Me? I was old school and too old to be writing for the mag. I was writing for and regularly took out my spite on shitty little bands, and in particular, the Ungrateful Dead. It was a little bemusing that my editor had insisted I do this. The twat never liked me anyhow. It promised to be a memorable interview. The last chord echoed in my ears and I took ten minutes to have another JD before heading backstage. A bulldog with a sense of humour failure stood blocking the door to backstage. I showed him my pass without a word. He let me through. There was the usual hangers-on in the corridor. Teenage girls, jailbait, wearing little in the way of clothing, prepared to sacrifice their virginity and their dignity to be closer to their heroes. Lads stoned out of their heads, as interested in the girls in the corridor as the band. I rapped on the door and announced myself. A pale-looking PR opened the door and ushered me in. The room was surprisingly dimly lit. There was trash all over the floor, empty bottles, pizza cartons. It looked like a teenager's bedroom, only on a larger scale. The band idled in the corner, passing each other a bottle of vodka and gulping deep. High from their set. The lead singer Mickey had his trousers round his ankles and an eager groupie was sucking on his cock as if it contained the elixir of life. I doubted it. But watching her little tight leather-clad ass and her head bopping up and down was kind of hypnotic. I made like Bob the Builder and prepared to build some bridges. Great gig, guys. Fucking awesome. They smirked a little as they regarded me. The bass player, who the press called Scarecrow, on account of his penchant for old clothes and lack of personal hygiene, held up a back copy of our magazine and started to read. Sounding like ten years out of date and looking about as attractive as an eighty-year-old nun with syphilis and a flesh-eating disease, the ungrateful dead will have a career as short as your average mayfly. Let's hope they'll be serving fries and fucking Burger King where they belong. I held up my hands in mock surrender. Come on, guys, don't hold that review against me. You know how the game's played. I knock you a little, 
We get 300 letters, complaints, some turds in the post, but we sell more copies. It's how it works. Scarecrow chose a few choice pieces from another couple of issues he had open ready on the desk. I was about to, about ready to say fuck this and walk out when I heard a noise behind me. I looked over my shoulder as the bulldog stepped into the room. He locked the door behind him ominously. Hey, what is this? Time stood still. Even the group he'd stopped her sucking and was regarding me whilst licking her lips. Her green eyes glinted in a way that looked chilling. I was sobering up fast. I was in for a kick in here and no messing. A furtive glance around the room showed there was no help from any quarter. Just the band, the bulldog, the PR, the cock-loving groupie and me. I looked to Mickey, the front man. I nearly shat myself. His piercing denim blue eyes showed no mercy. What unsettled me were his fucking teeth. Pointed like a vampire's. He stared me straight in the eye as he grasped the groupie's blonde hair and pulled her up. She gave a delighted little squeal as she turned to face him. He leaned forward and sank his teeth into her throat. Blood spurted and he made suckling noises. I watched in horrified fascination as the blood ran from her neck to dribble and pools on the floor. Fuck this, I thought, recovering from frightened mad rabbit syndrome. I turned and barged the unsuspecting bulldog, ramming him in the gut. A swift knee to the knackers and he dropped like a stone. I clambered at the door, turning the key the Muppet had left in him. I was away down the corridor and out the building, panting and second. Wild eyes and suddenly sober, I legged it down the street, gibbering in fear. Back in the club, the band looked at one another. Mickey removed his fake teeth and the blonde removed her blood pack. They all cracked up laughing, all at me. End. Cat and Mouse by Andrew Briggs. Uh, in brackets we have here, this is a true story, well almost. There's a mouse upon the carpet, but something isn't right. I need to pull the curtain back to get some better light. There's a mouse upon the carpet, I can see his two front paws. But though I've come, he doesn't run, I need to know the cause. There's a mouse upon the carpet, I can see his little head. But his whiskers aren't a twitching, I think he may be dead. There's a mouse upon the carpet, he's staring into space. I need to find my phone to get detectives on the case. There's a policeman on the carpet, he gives me such a stare. I think I see a problem, sir, his back half isn't there. There's a cat upon the carpet, he's looking rather smug. He looks at me as if to say, how about some breakfast? Cats only think about one thing and it's not rhyming poetry. I chide him for his slackness, the rhyme you must not lose. It's not my problem, Daddy-o, it's not my kind of muse. Postscript, but not for the squeamish. It's not the carpet cleaning, or what you must dispose. The problem's finding half a mouse twixt sleepy, sockless toes. Next up, we have a song by Peter Ord called Gumshoe Blues, which is a companion to the uh, novel by Paul D. Brazil of the same name. Hope you enjoy.
the hint of a hidden agenda She's the twist in a tormented tale She's the phone call you barely remember Gun for hire, never for sale But she's the drink at the end of a long day She's the night kicking off your shoes She can play it any way you like it You can take it any way you choose She's the joke of your brokered ambitions She could kill you in the blink of an eye She can lose herself in the shadows Like a long forgotten lullaby And I feel like I'm frozen in amber And I feel like I'm yesterday's news Lost in that silent September Still walking in a dead man's shoes I got the dumb shoe blues I was only a private detective I was only your private eye I made the rules for myself Then I made a fool of myself Over you Over you But she's the drink at the end of a long day She's the night slipping off your shoes She can play it anyway